Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be able to share with you today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that our website, on our website, you can now go to the Gathering tab and select Watch, Listen, or Read. Our gatherings are in all three formats now, and you can find our podcast by searching for Storyline Gathering wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And we also want you to know that as the pandemic hopefully wanes and the vaccines ramp up, that um, we're continuing to look for alternative venues to meet in person. St. Joe High School is not allowed to let us meet there and probably won't be until this fall. So we do have a plan for outdoor gatherings this summer at Lincoln Township Park. Please continue to check our Monday and Friday memos are on the emails for more information. So there you go. And now here we go. So say what you will about this last year. One good thing that we're seeing a lot of is conviction. People are extremely motivated, super passionate, and really inspired. I mean, there is no shortage of conviction today. The problem is way too often this conviction is leading us not just to action, but tragically to contempt. The nightly news and the daily headlines are a constant reminder of the contempt that our politicians, pundits, and even preachers have for one another, and basically anyone or cause with different convictions than they have. I was talking to a friend of mine who is a marriage counselor, and she was telling me marriages can bounce back from all kinds of difficult circumstances, deep divisions, horribly painful betrayal even, but one sign that a marriage may be beyond all hope is when one partner or both holds the other in contempt. I was describing the outline for this talk to a friend this week, and he cautioned me that, that as destructive and as harmful as contempt is, apathy may be even worse. It's an interesting point. I mean, apathy is difficult to work with, right? It's different, difficult to grow from because by definition, it's a disengagement from the world around us. I mean, in some ways, it's a type of contempt for any action at all. Apathy is just this thinly veiled attempt to get through a life of what Thoreau described as quiet desperation. So we may think apathy is a step above or beyond the hatred and the chaos of contempt, but it really isn't. It's this tacit admission that all conviction inevitably leads to doing more harm than good. All conviction is this slippery slope into contempt. Well, this morning, I want to challenge that. Both our temptation towards apathy and the slippery slope that too much conviction inevitably leads to contempt. And I'd like to invite us to consider the life of Jesus as an incredible example of how deep conviction can lead us from contempt to compassion. Drop. 
actually recommended that song to us and she sang it so beautifully and it fits so well with what we're talking about. To avoid apathy and contempt, we need to see how love conquers all. And the best example of this is the life of Jesus and his conviction to live by faith in the grace of God, which makes our question this morning, how does living by faith in the grace of God how does that conviction lead us from contempt into compassion? 
And I think we have to begin, if we're going to be honest, by acknowledging that Jesus at times seemed to display contempt. He called the religious establishment and its leaders blind guides, serpents, a brood of vipers, empty vessels filled with dead men's bones, among other things, none of which were very nice. In one translation, he berates the religious elites as hypocrites, saying, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Once he said of people exploiting children, it would be better had they not been born. Another time, he entered the temple and by force kicked out all of the dishonest merchants who were taking advantage of vulnerable people. But in fairness, we do need to see two things at least about the indignation of Jesus. First, it was reserved. Not for those who got it wrong or messed up. Not for people who were broke or broken or even for people who believed inaccurately. But strictly for people who held other people in contempt. Through exclusion, shame, exploitation, and even worse. And before we too quickly kind of use that as permission to therefore go and do likewise, you know, whenever we see that happening or whenever we see fit, I think it should be um, incumbent upon us to remember that Jesus has a full and accurate knowledge of exactly what's going on in every situation and in every human heart. We do not. And the second thing I think that we need to see about Jesus' intense frustration with some people was ultimately, when we look at the full story, the full arc of his life, the Bible makes it clear, he died for the sins of the whole world. And that means everyone. Not just the good guys, not just the nice people. On the cross, he even asks God to forgive those who were the most contemptible of all the people in the process of murdering him and enjoying it while they did. That is not contempt. That is compassion. In the end, Jesus' life can only be fairly described as one full of compassion, even for the most despicable villains. With all that being said, I think one of the reasons we can struggle, I know one of the reasons that I struggle, with conviction breeding contempt instead of compassion is when I get stuck, like fixated in a certain place or in a certain stage of life or the life of faith that elevates certain convictions over and above the one Jesus is calling me to. Now, we're all familiar with the framework of stages of development. Like psych majors will probably recall Piaget's four stages of child development or Eric Erickson's eight stages of psychosocial development. Many of us might be familiar with Kohlberg's stages of moral development or Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief or seven stages of grief, depending on which chart you look at. When something is described as stages, we often think of like this linear progression, step one, step two, stage three, stage four, like that. And while there's some truth to that, I've always found it more helpful to think of stages of development as like descriptions of the process that we move through, even the cycle 
that we move through when we're growing. The problem arises, and this is why it's so helpful to think in of, of stages of growth, is when we get stuck in a stage. For millennia now, spiritual thinkers and writers of every tradition have used this framework of stages to describe a healthy engagement with the life of faith and where it is leading us. One framework in particular that I've found to be helpful, helpful lays out the stages of faith uh, and the development of faith with their corresponding core convictions like this. Stage one, simplicity, and its core conviction of correctness. Stage two, complexity, with the core conviction of effectiveness. And stage three, perplexity, with the core conviction of justice. Now, as a young life leader, in my role at Storyline, as a parent, and certainly personally, I have seen how uh, a growing faith often moves through these stages. And I've also seen and experienced personally what happens when we get stuck in a stage. For example, the stage of simplicity is often experienced at the beginning of faith. And it's like a light switch going on. Like we come to faith and suddenly we can see. And it's easy to tell the difference between good and bad and right and wrong. And in this stage, it's not uncommon to fall in love with correctness, to, to become enamored with answers. Man, we're hard to be around in that stage, right? I mean, we've all been around people in that stage and it's no fun. When we come to believe that this simplicity is not the path, but the destination, our core conviction gets stuck on correctness. In politics, we call it ideology. Like when someone believes not just that what they believe is right, but that every other view is totally wrong, stupid, maybe even evil. The core conviction of correctness breeds contempt for the incorrect. Entire traditions and movements, communities and religions, ideologies can get stuck in this stage. And the same is true for the next two stages. So let's say that we move on, like we're, we're growing older, hopefully growing up, and simplicity is often like smothered under the fertilizer of real life and blooms into complexity. And in this stage, we begin to realize, much to the dismay of the ideologues, of, of the pundits, of the talking heads, that life isn't that simple. And in this stage, we begin to love effectiveness, like how to get things done on a practical level, like solving problems, fixing things, achieving goals, because in a complex world, effectiveness is the core conviction. I mean, to be honest, I struggle with getting stuck in this stage. And sure enough, when someone pushes back on me, when they don't share my complex yet effective view of life, work, family, theology, well, it isn't compassion that's rising up in me. It's contempt. This exasperated like eye roll of like, how can they be so, and it's fill in the blank, dumb, selfish, stupid, greedy, shallow, evil. 
the next stage of faith can do the same in us if, if we get stuck there, when we try to live our complex and effective view of life like out into the world, suddenly life and faith becomes perplexing. Like, what does this look like in the real world? What should our culture be like? How is this applied to society? It shouldn't be surprising that stuck in the stage of perplexity that we come to love our version of justice. Like, this is how it ought to be. It can become our core conviction. And maybe you've noticed, but when our core conviction is our version of justice and it's opposed, compassion is not the response. It's almost always white, hot contempt. A few Sundays ago, for our gathering, we remembered and celebrated the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. And this was a man with a profound convictions about justice. His life begs the question, how, when this conviction of justice was opposed, did he respond with compassion and not contempt? I believe it's because he was not stuck in this stage of faith. He was living the life of faith animated by a higher core conviction, moving through these stages toward the ultimate goal. Now the point I'm trying to make is the stages of simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and their convictions aren't bad, but they're only a means to an end. And if we get stuck, when we mistake the path for the destination, stuck in these lesser convictions, well, when they're opposed, we are doomed to contempt. But as we see in Martin Luther King, and as he discovered at first in the life of Jesus, a healthy engagement with life and the life of faith ultimately leads us towards this goal of harmony with the core conviction of love. Love is the only conviction that in the end, even when it is opposed, leads to compassion and not contempt. One of Jesus' first followers, a man named Paul, described living by faith in the grace of God in, in many ways, in many beautiful sections of the New Testament of the Bible. But none are more compelling than this soaring passage that we're going to look at right now. I think you'll find the stages of faith and their convictions in this passage. And even more than that, I think you'll hear how God is telling us this is where they lead and where they can lead us if we'll let them. This is what the Bible says. Now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's words with power, revealing all his mysteries, making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. 
Love doesn't strut, doesn't take a swelled, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel. Love takes pleasure in the flowering of the truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see these things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. What a gorgeous passage of scripture. Paul makes it clear that nearly everything that we strive for, all of our lesser convictions, will be swallowed up in something greater. Even faith and hope don't have the last word. Only love remains. What a powerful reminder of where a healthy engagement with life and faith is headed, where it's leading us and the dangers of getting stuck in any stage along the way, of allowing our core convictions to be correctness, effectiveness, or even justice as we see it. That doesn't mean these convictions are bad or wrong. It only means they are the means, not the end. They are the scaffolding, not the building, the aroma, not the feast. The life of faith is simple at times. It's complex at others, and it's very often perplexing. But often, and ultimately, all of these stages are leading us toward harmony. A deep, abiding, and extravagant love for everyone, everywhere, every day. A love that, when it is opposed, doesn't respond with contempt, but with compassion. It is this love and compassion, the love of God, that led Jesus to the cross where he laid down correctness, set aside effectiveness, and absorbed injustice for my sake and for yours and for the sake of the entire world which held him in contempt. It is because of the cross that we can let go of these convictions as our core and move forward into harmony and love. The cross of Jesus is where conviction leads to compassion. And the life of faith in his gospel of grace is our invitation to pick up our cross and do likewise. 
to follow Jesus beyond faith, past hope, and into the most excellent way of love. The only conviction that leads from contempt to compassion. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to be together. Thank you for the ways that you are leading us. I pray that you would help us to see the helpful ways that we are moving through back and forth, different stages of development and different areas of our life. I ask that you would give us um, the ability to understand maybe when we get stuck, when our core convictions and when we elevate a lesser one to the place um, where love is supposed to be. And I pray that you would help us to see contempt as the signpost that that's happening in us. I would thank you for the way that you love us, for the way that you took on contempt, the way you absorbed it into yourself, and the way that that offers us the ability and the hope to live with compassion and love for one another. God, I pray that as we log off this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us, folks. Hope to see you soon.